Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Because we're new to the world of podcasts, taking time to give us a review or a thumbs up will mean a great deal to us and will help us reach more people. Our goal is to allow the wisdom, honesty, and encouragement found in the life and writings of Henry Nouwen to speak to a world hungry for meaning. Now let me introduce today's very special podcast. Dr. Sean Mulrooney is the chair of the Henry Nouwen Society. Sean is also a professor of philosophy at St. Augustine Seminary and at Regis College here in Toronto. In the spring of this year, we asked Sean to lead a one-day retreat here in Toronto. The theme was Alone in the Desert, a Lenten retreat with Henry Nouwen as guide. This was intended to be a meditation on loneliness and what to do about it. Despite having the internet and social media, more and more of us are feeling alone and disconnected. Sean helps us understand why this is and what we can do about it. How we can connect more with ourselves and with our community and with our God. I invite you to listen to Dr. Sean Mulrooney's morning session on this very special one-day retreat. So today I want to talk to you about loneliness and what to do about it. Although we like to talk about our own loneliness about as much as we like to talk about our own sexually transmitted diseases, loneliness is rampant in our society and in us. Last year in the United Kingdom, a ministry of loneliness was set up, not by the church, but by the British government to address the crisis of loneliness in British society. And we're not much different. I mean, we're Canadians, so we don't talk about anything important, but the problem is here. And my talk this morning is called The Human Journey Into Loneliness. And my afternoon talk is called uh, The Christian Journey Away from Loneliness. In The Wounded Healer, Henry Nouwen says that loneliness is like the Grand Canyon. And I thought, yeah, that's true. Loneliness is that big. A deep incision in the surface of our existence. But then Henry goes on to say this, which has become an inexhaustible source of beauty and of self-understanding. Today we're going to explore the depths of meaning found in that single sentence. And I realize uh, a number of people here will be Henry Nouwen fans. I would even think most. But I also know that there are some people uh, in uh, here who don't know anything about Henry Nouwen. So just very briefly, uh, Henry was a Roman Catholic priest born in Holland in 1932. Uh, He was a professor of pastoral theology at Notre Dame, at Yale, and Harvard. And as well as being a popular teacher, Henry also developed an international reputation uh, for writing books on the spiritual life that were accessible to everyone, to Catholics and Protestants, to Christians and non-Christians, to believers and non-believers. 
and, but Henry wrote the uh, Wounded Healer almost 50 years ago. And as far as uh, loneliness goes, how is it with us today? And the comments that I'm going to make here are meant to evoke something in you. I'm going to tell you my story, but my story isn't your story. But I offer my story in order for it to resonate in your heart. So you have to supply that part. I'm just doing half of it. You have to do the rest. So where am I, if you ask me? I am on my computer. That's where I am. Uh, I'm a professor, and so I do research and write lectures. Uh, the computer is amazing for both. If I'm writing a lecture on Aristotle and want to consult the Greek text, I used to have to go to the library. Now it's online, and I can consult it from anywhere in the world 24-7. And before I had a computer, I used to write my lectures longhand. Uh, and that meant scribbling out one passage and writing another one above it and using a million arrows to indicate where the next uh, passage goes. It was quite a mess. Now you type, delete, cut, and paste. It's all clean and easy. And we're on our devices for entertainment, too. Uh, we listen to music on iTunes. We watch movies and TV shows on Netflix. We download, download podcasts. We watch YouTube. Guys play video games like Dark Souls, Resident Evil, and Grand Theft Auto. Our phones are always with us, and our social lives are lived out through texting, Instagram, Snapchat, and WhatsApp. When my 17-year-old uh, goddaughter got a new iPhone for Christmas, I asked her, what does your new iPhone do, Rachel? And she said, with shining eyes, what doesn't it do? Our devices are powerful, entertaining, and fast. It's amazing what we can do with them. And I don't want to erase that. I really don't. But there's a dark side to all this that we didn't see coming. As much as technology facilitates our lives, it also chokes our lives. As well as connecting us to what we need and want, our devices beckon us to what we don't need and what we don't want. We're not just occupied, but we're preoccupied with technology. So in answer to the question, where are we? I would say we are on our devices, and so we are distracted. That's the word, we are distracted. And distraho comes from two Latin words. Distraction comes from distraho, two Latin words. Dis means dispersed in different directions. And traho is the word where we get tractor. And a tractor is something that drags. So if you're distracted, you're being dragged in many directions. And that's certainly how I feel all the time. As well as watching the highlights of the Raptors game, I end up reading the comments on the game and listen to an analysis of the game and answer email and watch a Family Guy clip on YouTube. 
And so I bet you don't have the same list as me, but supply your own list. What happens when you go online and the different directions you get dragged in? Some of us obsessively watch the news so we can roll our eyes at the latest thing that Donald Trump has done. We're often on our devices when we're eating alone. And increasingly, we are often on our devices when we're eating with other people. Uh, many of us take our devices, uh, we're getting intimate here, many of us take our uh, devices to bed and pick them up first thing in the morning to check for what is unclear, but we always need it with us. We're texting while we're walking, and incomprehensibly to me, we're texting while we're driving. We're always waiting for the irresistible ping from our computers or the vibration of our cell phones. And what I want to evoke is that feeling of always being on call. Just imagine what that feels like. You don't have to imagine because we all have it. The we don't all, I'm sorry. You're, you're quite right, Mary Lou. And, and that's one of the reasons why I love you, is that, is that you're not like that. I should say most of us. It's so good, Mary Lou. Since we're distracted, uh, we're not present to those around us. And since we're not present to those around us, we are lonely. We don't want to be lonely. We want to connect. That's why we use social media. The desire for connection with others, I think, is perhaps the most real thing in us. But it's rarely fulfilled by using technology. The promise is there, but the fulfillment isn't. Ironically, the results are actually the opposite. Study after study shows that we feel more disconnected after using social media than we did before using it. And if you consult your own experience, you already know that that's true. So having said that, that we're distracted and we're lonely because of social media, I want to say one more thing. And that is that social media are not the cause of our loneliness. Before social media, people were lonely. Before social media, there was television and alcohol and drugs. And before that, there was talking politics and talking about other people. We often talk about others so we don't have to look at ourselves. Uh, as Henry says, entertainment, hard work, and a busy social life are often ways to avoid looking at ourselves. So although computers and social media magnify our loneliness, they don't cause our loneliness. So why are we so lonely? We don't start our lives lonely. We start out united to our mothers in the womb. We're then surrounded by family, and we're in touch with our hearts and therefore with our real desires. 
Childhood is a time when we know our hearts. And so it's a time of both delight and devastation. If you want to know what delight looks like, see a three-year-old with an ice cream cone. This is the best thing ever. If you want to see devastation, watch the ice cream cone fall off. Watch the ice cream fall off the cone onto the ground. Right? Delight and devastation. That's what little kids are like. That's why they're so delightful. There's no twilight with little kids. They're 100% on or 100% devastated. When we're young, none of us are half-hearted. But living from your heart doesn't last long. Soon children are required uh, to conform to what others say. Parents, society, religion, and friends all put demands on us. We have to learn not to be so self-centered. And part of that is well and good, uh, but part of it is not. I want to tell you a story. Karen already mentioned that I'm a single father. And uh, my son, Yanni, is 27 now. But uh, I still remember when he was four years old, he uh, woke me up at dawn and he told me, he said, Tato, that's the Macedonian word for dad. He said, Tato, the sun comes up slowly, not like a frog. And then he showed me with his hand. He says, Tato, the sun comes up slowly, not like a frog. <laughs> and I thought, I, I just thought, this is, this is delightful. I had, if you can believe it, uh, I had made it to the age of 35, um, and I had never noticed the difference between the sun and a frog, and that the sun moves very slowly when it's rising. And you know, and for kids, time goes very slowly. So the sun's going really slowly, and obviously, for some reason, Yanni had gotten up before dawn, and he was watching the sun. And it was so remarkable that he had to wake up his sleeping father and tell me about this. And I thought, this is really astonishing poetry. And, and beautiful originality. Nobody, men, nobody told him to do that. He saw it for himself. It's so remarkable and delightful. And then he started at school, and his conversation went from frogs and the sun to uh, video games, running shoes. And he knew, in, once he was in grade one, that Adidas, Nikes, and Fila's rock and all other shoes are just not worth having. So you see what's happened here is that he had something original, creative, and beautiful, and then the con his opinions about, uh, you know, about running shoes and about video games were the opinions of every other boy in grade one at the time. It's what happens. I think it's a real fall to go from what you really love and know to what everybody else is saying. But that's so it is. And while the gradual process of socialization is necessary for all of us, that's not the real reason why we abandon who we are. I think the real reason we abandon who we are is that it is simply too painful to always live from the heart. It is too painful to go out into the world looking for love 
and to be told, I don't love you. I'm convinced that our early experience of our loves and their shattering defines us. If you read Henry Nouwen's uh, biography, you will learn that as a child, he was incessantly asking his parents, do you love me? He had a loving mother and a demanding father who had no sympathy for weakness or failure. Although Henry was gregarious and intelligent, he was also physically awkward uh, with an insatiable appetite for love and attention. Because he incessantly clamored for his parents' love, first his father and then even his mother became exasperated with him. But Henry's not the only one to experience heartbreak as a child. Uh, let me tell you some heartbreaks of my early life, and there are so many. Uh, the, the first heartbreak that I remember is when I was four, I found a baby bird that had fallen out of the nest. And I brought the baby bird to my mother. And I said, Mom, there's a baby bird here, and I want to save it. And my mom had this look of sadness on her face, and she says, oh, Sean, you know, when the baby birds fall out of the nest, that's usually kind of it. You know, they don't survive. And I said, no, I am going to feed it and take care of it, and you will see it will survive. And I did everything in my power, and the bird died the next day. And I was heartbroken. Uh, yeah, that's my first, the first heartbreak I can remember. I was four. And then there's going to school. And I remember uh, when I was going to school, the kids were playing marbles. So we had uh, shoot, we had the normal, uh, the normal marbles were called shooters. And then we had other marbles that were called beauties. And they were sort of special. And what you would do is you would take your shooters and you would try to hit the beauty uh, from, from a, a certain distance, and if you hit it, then you won it. And I thought this was so exciting, so I came home uh, and I told mom, mom, I want to play marbles. And my mom found the marbles that we had uh, at our place, or she, she bought some other ones, whatever it was. Anyway, I went to school, and uh, I was playing with some unscrupulous grade threes. And uh, the result is I had no marbles at the end of recess. And, and like the three-year-old with the ice cream cone, I was so happy with the marbles, and I just thought this is going to be the best thing. And I just got cleaned out the first day. And I was devastated, I was humiliated, I was embarrassed, and that's just what it's like. And I'm sure you can supply your own stories of heartbreak from when you were uh, a child. Oh, I'm, I'm all, I was also a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. So, uh, it's, been over, it, it, it's been over 50 years since they've won anything, so uh, there's just heartbreak there. By the way, I'm no longer a Leafs fan, I'm an ex-Leafs fan, you know, is that I just, I, I'm sorry, I can only take so much. Um, and so, since the devastation of love sought and denied is so painful, um, we soon stop openly seeking love. We do so to protect ourselves from devastation, but we also thereby cut ourselves off from delight. 
We start lying about what we really want, first to others and then to ourselves. So once we've given up on heart's desire, what do we seek? Well, there's a couple of answers. The first obvious one is we seek pleasure. Everyone likes pleasure. What's not to like? But pleasure isn't happiness. Imagine going out to an expensive restaurant after you've had a big fight with your beloved. Maybe you're both dressed up to the nines and look fantastic, and the food is amazing, and you are obviously completely miserable. As much as we all enjoy pleasure, mere pleasure is never where our hearts lie. So what do we seek when we give up seeking our heart's desire? Well, another answer is we seek power. First, the obvious, and and it just came to me, it's very simple. For males, do you know what power means? Power means muscle. If you've got muscles and you're a guy, other guys respect you. You look good too, guy, muscular guys. Women like to look at muscular guys. That's what guys do. For power, guys get muscle. For both sexes, uh, Mary Lou, yeah. That's so important though. I think it is. Uh, I And and you know, Mary Lou, no one else is saying it, but everybody agrees. It's true. It is. You, I, I agree with you. I'm with you. And for both sexes, beauty is power. It just is. If you are beautiful, all sorts of things become possible to you. Again, I think it's sort of the universal uh, experience of women, of young women, uh, that when you're growing up, you know, you're the annoying little sister of your older brother. And then when you're 15 or 16 and you're starting to mature and you become very beautiful, these guys who are pushing you around and pulling your pigtails and telling you to go away, now they're being really nice. Not, now they're being nice to you. Not only are they being nice to you, they're being really nice to you. And that's power. Beauty is power. And being successful, of course, is a form of power. If you can't be muscular and good-looking, you can at least be rich. And so we develop what I call the resume version of the self and, the resume, and what your resume is, is your resume is all the good things that you've ever done in your life. You put them down on one sheet of paper. And then you say, this is who I am. And we all need resumes. I understand that. But there's a problem here. However impressive your resum- resume is, first of all, it's only half the story. Right? It's the good part and not the bad part. It's only half the story. Furthermore, your resume never invites intimacy because your, en- your resume is about power. It's about saying how I'm special, how I'm the best, why I should get this job. So uh, power and resumes never lead to intimacy. And social media is the resume version of the self 
on steroids 24-7. And of course, we seek pleasure and power together in social life and especially in romance. It does not usually go well. When we don't live from our hearts, we tend to settle for mirroring those around us, especially our romantic partners. I remember having a conversation with a friend, a bit of a heartbreaking conversation, but she was saying, yeah, you know, when I go out with somebody and I really like them, I'm not myself. I'm very careful around them. I find out what that person likes and then I mirror that because I don't want to be rejected. I just can't take the rejection. It's too painful to show who we really are and risk rejection. Once we give up on heart's desire and start seeking power, we're condemned to advertise our successes and hide and deny our weaknesses. The good face that we show to the world is what the psychologist Carl Jung calls the persona and what Thomas Merton calls the false self. We cultivate and display the part of us that gets approval and we reject and hide the part of us that doesn't. So we don't live whole lives. Do you know what the Latin word for whole is? The Latin word is integer, and that's where we get integrity. So to live with integrity is to live a whole life, but most of us don't live whole lives. We live half lives. We become increasingly artificial and unhappy, and we don't want people to get too close because then they'll see who we really are and that the persona is only half of who we are. And even, or should I say especially, the gorgeous, the successful, and the intelligent are unhappy because everyone always has something to hide. So whenever we seek power, no wonder we're lonely. So what can we do about this loneliness that inhabits the center of our lives and inhibits us from really living? Well, I want to give you a rather surprising suggestion. I mean, I'm a pretty boring person, so I don't get to surprise people very often. But this is the surprising suggestion uh, that I have. If you want to stop being lonely, you need to go out into the desert alone. I suggest that we are lonely and unhappy, not because we're not good-looking enough, or we haven't met the right person, or we aren't successful. More fundamentally, I think, we're lonely and unhappy because we have lost touch with ourselves. We're isolated from other people because we're isolated from our own deepest self. Because we've been seeking pleasure and power, we've lost touch with our own hearts, that part of us that feels delight and devastation. And we cannot possibly be happy when we don't even know who we are or what we want. 
So what are we going to find in the desert? Probably you will not find your heart's desire right away. But we, in the desert, we can lose our distractions and then we're free to find out who we really are and what we really want. So I'd like to play not the whole song, but a bit of a song uh, by a group called the Indigo Girls, um, two gay women from uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, this is a, a song of theirs, uh, the beginning of the song. It's called Watershed. I knew my mind Like the back of my hand The gold and the rainbow Nothing planned out as I'd planned They say that only milk and honey Is gonna keep your soul satisfied Better learn how to swim Cause the crossing is chilly and wide A twisted guardrail on the highway Broken glass on the cement The ghost of someone's tragedy How recklessly my life has been spent they say it's never too late You know, you don't get any younger Well, I better learn how to starve the emptiness And feed the hunger I better learn how to starve the emptiness And feed the hunger song goes on uh, uh, from there. It's just an awesome song. But the last line that is the thing that I hold on to. Uh, I mean, it's something, it's just that line has been resonating in me for about a decade now. We have to starve the emptiness and feed the hunger. And we usually do the opposite. When I am obsessed with checking my email every two minutes. God knows why I'm checking my email every two minutes. I don't have an earthly beloved who is sending me message saying, you're just so wonderful, this is fantastic. It's always more work, but I'm just doing this. I just keep on and I'm distracted from everything else because I'm checking my damn email. It's very odd. It's addiction is what it is is when you're doing that. So what I usually do is I feed my emptiness 
And then what you do is you starve uh, your hunger. But uh, the indigo girls have it right. What we, I better learn how to starve my emptiness and feed my hunger. Now as children, we weren't strong enough to face devastation alone. So we put all our energy into seeking power. But we're no longer children. And so it's time to recall what our hearts really want. Going to the desert is the only way to happiness. And which is much the same thing. It is the only way to stop being lonely. If you like what you heard, stay tuned for part two with Dr. Sean Mulrooney. For more resources related to today's podcast, click on the links on the podcast page of our website. You can find additional content, book suggestions, and other additional material, including a link to books to get you started, in case you're new to the writings of Henry Nouwen. Thanks for listening. Until next time.